0: Uh, If you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6 today. Uh, If you don't have uh, your Bible, you can find the words to the text printed in the bulletin. Uh, We are continuing this series looking at uh, the book of Isaiah. Every prophet like Isaiah has a call story. Uh, If you look at all the prophets of the Old Testament, there's a call story. And by that I mean there's an occasion when God comes to them and says, This is who you are, this is what I want you to do, this is your message, this is going to be your manner of life, and nearly always that call story is very challenging to the prophet, and I think we'll see today uh, the same thing in a a different way can be said about our own call story and encounter with the Lord, and so if you'll look now, let's read uh, Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He said, go, tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants. Until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is the word of the Lord and the call of Isaiah the prophet. Every Christian, I mean, not every Christian's a prophet like Isaiah, but every Christian has a call story. I wonder if you know what yours is and what it was like when God first called you and told you what your manner of life was going to be as you followed Jesus. All of us have different ways of coming about it, but it always involves this. At some point in our lives, God shows up. And when God shows up, you know, there's just something unique about that. There's something, you can know God from a distance, right? Sometimes for most of your life, you can know God from a distance. And then suddenly God shows up. Isaiah was this way. You know, we we don't know that much about Isaiah, you know, in terms of the details of his life. But what we do know makes it very clear. This was a man who was connected to the priestly family. That means he had lots of access to the temple. This was not his first time going to worship in the temple. He knew God in a sense. Uh, He was a man who probably had connection to uh, the royal family as well because he had this sort of uncommon access to all the kings of Israel that were reigning during his ministry. So he was not unfamiliar with being in very important places. And yet on this day, something happened that just shattered Isaiah. Because it wasn't just, you know, let's go hear about God from second hand. It wasn't just, let's go do my, you know, religious duty that I've been doing all my life. It was, no, I came, and what does it say in verse 1? I saw the Lord, high and exalted, lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. And I want to tell you that every conversion, that is, every time someone becomes a Christian, a similar thing happens in one way or the other in your life. God shows up. Also, every time a church gets revived, you know, a church that might be struggling with spiritual deadness, when it comes alive, it happens in this way too. God shows up. When a whole community, there there are stories in church history where entire towns become awakened to the presence of God. God showed up. But, y'all, when God shows up, it's not always comfortable, at least in the short-term sense. In fact, I'll say it's never comfortable in the short term sense. Look at your bulletin at the very end, and you'll see an outline for the sermon today. When God shows up, He shows us, first of all, His holiness, second of all, His grace, and last but not least, His commission His holiness, His grace, and His commission. First of all, God showed Isaiah, and He shows us His holiness. Uh, When you go to visit somebody very important, especially if they're really, really important, you're usually brought into a briefing where you're briefed on the protocol for entering into their presence, right? I mean, you, you can't think about just, you know, anybody. Like, think about the Queen of England, for example, or the President of the United States. If you were invited to go have audience with them, like to go actually sit down with them face to face, I guarantee you, I've never done either one of them, But I guarantee you, somebody who's well-connected is going to bring you in for a little chat. Uh, And that chat is going to go over some basic protocols. You know, here's what to do and not to do. Here's what to say and not to say. Here's how to curtsy or bow in the appropriate way at the appropriate height uh, to make sure. Here's how to kiss the ring or whatever it is you have to do to show that you recognize the sort of the awesomeness of the person in whose presence you are. Well, you know, like I said, Isaiah knew this. I mean, he was a man who went to kings. He knew, he knew Uzziah, for example, the man who died this very year that he saw this vision of the Lord. He knew all the kings after him. He, he, he knew the high priest personally, more than likely. He was a man who knew how to be in the presence of VIPs. And yet, when he saw God, he has to have a very earth-shattering, heart-shaking, protocol briefing, because he's in the presence of somebody that far outweighs in one particular way, he, in many ways actually, but one particular way here, he far outweighs any other very important person that walks the earth. The seraphim, what do they announce about God? What makes him so unapproachable and inaccessible? He's holy, holy, holy. That's what they say. Isaiah's got to understand, he's in the presence of holiness. It may be that Isaiah knew the word holy. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he knew the definition. I'm sure he had read all the stories about Moses, for example, when he set up the temple and the walls shook at that time and the smoke filled the the tabernacle when when Solomon built the temple and the same thing happened. He knew these stories. But Isaiah, to be a true prophet of the Lord, to really be called to walk with God in his daily life, he was going to have to experience that for himself in some way. And so the holy, holy, holy God fills the temple, the train of his robe, the, the angels that have you know, six different wings. I mean, We've got to admit that would be a weird sight. In fact, the word seraphim means the burning ones. So it wouldn't just be a weird sight, it would be a, actually a terrifying sight. To see these burning, fiery angels, you know, moving in and out over the top of this radiant presence of God. And and they're saying over and over again, whether it's in hushed tones or whether it's in loud voices, they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. Heaven and earth is full of his glory. Isaiah had to have this kind of encounter. He had to be shaken down. And so did Israel, by the way, which is, I think, why God wanted his prophet to Israel, To experience this at his call. Because Israel was at a time where they probably would have been numb to the holiness of God. Their beloved king had just died or was about to die. And Uzziah had reigned for over 50 years. And so if we have trouble every four years or every eight years when transfer of power happens, can you imagine after 50 something years having to figure out how to transfer power to the next generation? It was a small crisis. Also, Israel, we said this last week, at least the southern kingdom was very, very prosperous during Isaiah's day. All kinds of reasons would have been there for them to go numb to the holiness of God. Uh, in, In the meantime, the Assyrian Empire was gathering strength and was threatening at their borders. There was all these reasons why people would have ignored God and would have tried to live like God wasn't that big of a factor. And so God wanted his prophet from the very beginning to get shaken. To get, as it says, ruined. Did you notice that there? Uh, in, uh, whenever Isaiah sees this amazing vision, verse 5, and the temple fills with smoke, woe to me, he says. In other words, how pitiful I am. What a sad guy I am. What a sad person. There's no way I deserve to be in this place right now. I am ruined or I am undone. I'm unraveled, I'm shattered. Now, why is he shattered? Because I am, he says, a man of unclean lips. And I live in the midst of a people who also have unclean lips. And now these unclean lips, these unclean eyes, this unclean heart is seeing a vision of the Lord God Almighty and his holy angels pronouncing nothing but his holiness, What does the holiness of God mean? It means that God is utterly unique. He's greater than Uzziah. He's greater than Assyria. Uh, He's greater than any crisis of the transfer of power. He's greater than even prosperity that might come into our lives and make us feel like we're safe and immune from any kind of trouble. God is greater than all of it, and he's greater for one particular reason. Isaiah understood it. God is holy because he is perfectly pure morally. There is no shadow of variation in God. In other words, God doesn't change. He doesn't have one minute he's reliable, the next minute he's unreliable. One minute he tells the truth, the next minute he deceives. There's none of that in God like it is in us. God is perfectly pure in all of his morality. Holy, holy, holy. And in just by seeing it, just by hearing it, just by having the smoke fill the temple, Isaiah is brought to a place of utter dependence on God, complete shattering of his heart and y'all I want to tell you when God shows up in your life something like that has to happen you might call it a heartquake. you know it wasn't just the walls shaking that day in the temple it was clearly Isaiah's heart was shaking because he understood that he wasn't worthy to be on God's side he wasn't worthy for God to be on his side and you've got to understand that too to become a Christian, to even become one. Now, it doesn't happen to everybody in the same way. Some people have a very dramatic experience. Some don't have a dramatic experience. But one way or the other, for you to be a Christian, you've got to understand, woe is me, for I am ruined. I am completely pulverized by the holy presence of God. I don't deserve to get in. I don't deserve to hear what I'm hearing right now. I don't deserve to join in to the song of angels. I can't even believe I'm still alive, in fact, right at this very moment. (laughs) Because here is this Lord filling the temple, high and lifted up. This is the way it was with Simon Peter, for example, in the New Testament. One of Jesus' favorite followers, if you could put it that way. When he first met Jesus, remember what Simon said? Oh Lord, I'm glad you're here because I deserve you. I'm glad you picked me because I'm I'm your man. I'm the right guy. No, he didn't say that. He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Same as Isaiah. Every time someone becomes a Christian, same thing. Every time revival hits a community or a church, when God falls down, revival is not something we can produce, by the way. It's something that only God can bring. And he brings it supernaturally. And one of the first steps to him bringing it is shattering the people. So that people can say, not just just because they know they're supposed to say it, they can say from the heart, I'm a sinner, depart from me, I don't deserve to be here. In fact, when you don't feel that way, that is the path to spiritual sickness and death. Just ask King Uzziah. I don't think it's an accident that... uh, Isaiah just wants to remind us, hey, this happened in the year he died. Because King Isaiah's story, if you don't know it, is very interesting in this connection. Uh, he was a very good king most of his life. He, he was actually very prosperous. Uh, he brought Israel back to almost the same level as David had brought it. And yet, at the end of his life, he got a little proud. He got a little, you know, kind of too big for his britches. And he came into the temple, didn't wait for the priest. He barged in with incense to try to worship God. And just before he made it to the most holy place, the priest came in and stopped him, thankfully. Because Uzziah probably would have died at that moment. But the priest stopped him. Uzziah was not happy because, after all, I'm the king. And so he starts right there in the middle of God's temple yelling at the priests. And immediately, you know what happened? Uzziah's forehead breaks out in leprosy. And it begins to spread to his face, to his chest, to his hands, to his arms. He spent the rest of his days in quarantine in a separate house. His son had to take over the administration of the palace while he sat there nursing his wounds from leprosy. God is saying to Isaiah, don't pull a Uzziah. If you're going to be my prophet and say to the people, woe are you, you've got to first say, woe is me. And a Christian is someone who doesn't first wag their finger at the world and say, woe are you. How terrible a sinner y'all are. I can't believe y'all would do that to God. You need to repent. A Christian is someone who first says, woe is me. I need to repent. I can't believe I've done this to God. I don't deserve to be in God's family or in God's presence. The question this morning is, have you been so shaken? Have you, I mean, have you been unraveled? by the holiness of God. It's something really only God can bring to you. Just like Isaiah, he came to church and the last person he expected to see was God. (laughs) And sometimes that's the way it is, isn't it? We come to church and that's the last thing we expect to encounter. It's kind of funny, isn't it, that we think that way. And yet there he was, I saw the Lord and it shook him to the core. That's the first thing. Secondly, when God shows up, he also shows us his grace. That's a great thing because without grace, holiness is unbearable. It's unbearable. I mean, it's an intolerable weight that you cannot carry. But yet, without holiness, grace doesn't make sense. And so, God first shows Isaiah the holiness of God so that he can then show him grace, so that Isaiah would live in a sense of amazement. I mean, Isaiah was going to go out to Israel in just a short time and begin to pronounce judgment and grace to all the people. And if he wasn't amazed by it, right, if he wasn't shaken by the message he was sent to to give, that was not going to be a very convincing message. It was not going to be a very good thing. And so God is trying to build in Isaiah this amazement that, wow, God would actually do something about a sinner like me, that he would love me. See, sometimes to be unamazed at something that you should be amazed at can actually be very dangerous, can't it? Um, I, I may have mentioned this before, but I, I really enjoy this um, National Geographic documentary called Free Solo. I think I've, I've mentioned this to you, and maybe some of you have seen it. It's a really, really fascinating uh, movie. Uh, it's a true story about a rock climber named Alex Honnold. I think that's how you say his name. And uh, the, the thing about him is that he has no fear, basically. <laughs> and so he free soloed, which means he climbed the, the mountain face of El Capitan in Yosemite without any strings attached. So he had no, you know, anchor points like climbers usually have, you know, anchoring along the way. He's just out there hanging on for dear life. And he's doing it at record time, too, by the way. And they actually, in this documentary, they scanned his brain to see, okay, how can someone do this? Because nobody else is signing up to do this, by the way. And they found that actually he had lesions on a certain part of his brain, which calls a condition called kluver busey syndrome, which creates a lack of fear at fearful things, a lack of amazement at amazing things. So literally, this guy is built different. He's got a different brain than you and I do in some way. Something happened to him that, that, that made this occur so that he's able to doop, 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 go right up the top of this very steep mountain without any butterflies or, ter- I would have terror, not just butterflies. He didn't have it. And so he was able to do it not just slow but fast, breaking all the records. He broke records that even people who were strapped in couldn't break. I mean, that's how, that's how crazy this guy is. God wants to make sure that Isaiah doesn't suffer from such spiritual brain lesions you see because sometimes we can see the huge mountain face of God's holiness and the even bigger mountain face of God's grace and yawn and a prophet of the Lord can't yawn at the grace of God if he's gonna go out and be the spokesman of the grace of God and I want to tell you the same thing for a Christian You cannot yawn at the grace of God and yet say, by grace I am saved. You can't go out to your neighbors and friends and family members and say, hey, come and see Jesus. If Jesus to you is just another pedestrian, you know, same old, same old kind of thing. And so God comes and he shows us in our hearts his grace. Every time he calls a person, he shows them the wonder of grace. And so look at what it says. Verse 6 One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Now you've got to understand what the altar is. It's talking about the altar of burnt offering, which was right outside the front door of the temple. And that was where the sin offerings were placed. They, they were slaughtered, they were put on that, that altar. And they were burnt and and the smoke went up to God and it was a sweet smell in his nostrils and he forgave the sins from that altar. Well, the angel went to that altar, the one where the sin offering had been performed, and he took a coal that was still hot from underneath it and he flew over to Isaiah and he put that coal right against Isaiah's lips. If you've ever seen a a cow being branded, some of you have seen that, as I have, and it's like that. I mean, the, the, the holy, this holy angel was branding Isaiah, but not just, you know, on the hindquarters like we do with cows. He, he was branding him right up front, uh, actually right at the part that he said was the most offensive part about him. Isaiah had confessed, I, the worst thing about me, Lord, and, and maybe you'd have a different thing to confess, I don't know, but at least for him, he said, the worst thing about me is the way I use my mouth. I have a dirty mouth in comparison to you. And I dwell among a people who just have dirty mouths. And so the angel came and he he branded him right there. And then it says, See, the angel speaking, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. In other words, by the sacrifice offered on the altar, two things happened. The guilt that he had before God as the judge was literally taken away, removed. So that Isaiah, who once was, I am guilty and condemned, now is, I am justified and free. I can go free. I do not have to be put to death because my sins have been punished in another. There was substitution that was happening for the sake of Isaiah. And then the second thing that happened, it says, is sin was atoned for, which that word atonement is really interesting. Uh, In the Bible, it's actually the same word for the mercy seat that covers over the Ark of the Covenant within the innermost place of the temple. It's the place of God and man being put back together again where they were separated. That's why in English we have the word atonement. I think it was John uh, Wycliffe, you know, way back when he was first translating the Bible into English in the 1400s who made up the word. And it's made of three words, at one mint, at one mint, Things that are not at-one because of the removal of guilt are brought back to being at-one. Can you see what's happening here? Isaiah, in the presence of the Holy God, becomes pulverized, shattered, broken, unraveled, and now through the sacrifice on the altar, Isaiah is becoming re-sewn back up together. He no longer has to be condemned before God. And he no longer has to be shattered into pieces on the floor. God begins to put him back together, to make him whole again. That's what the scripture says every Christian's experience is. Jesus' death on the cross is the great altar. There is no greater altar that's ever been known. That that is the altar to which all the altars pointed when Jesus died. Because the Son of God was taking the holy wrath of God in the place of his people so that his people could be put back together again, not only within themselves and not only with each other, but they could be actually put back together again with God himself. So that Isaiah, who was, you know, in verse 5 saying, Lord, I don't deserve to be here. I can't believe that you haven't killed me yet. I can't believe I haven't broken out in leprosy the way Uzziah did. Then says in verse 8, Here I am. Send me. Do you see how grace takes us, as the Bible says, from darkness and it brings us into nothing less than blinding light? It takes us from being shut out to brought in. It takes us from being strangers and aliens in the kingdom of God to being citizens and sons and daughters. Not something that we can't walk through life being unamazed by. I think we're often unamazed by it because we believe it's, it happened in a relatively cheap fashion, right? But because salvation comes by grace to us, sometimes we think it was free to God. We, we think, well, you know, kind of the attitude that, hey, you know, it's just God's job to forgive. He just, he just does it, and it's not a big deal for him, and he just forgives. He just accepts us as we are, no big deal. Anybody can come in because God's just cool like that. But the Bible says that's not the way it is. God does not diminish his holiness not one bit. He doesn't relax his law not one iota, Jesus says. And yet, at the great cost of the death of his son, he's able to take those who have violated every iota of his law and to bring them right in. Not just to let them go, but to bring them all the way in so that they would know the comfortable, joyful presence of God. Now, that was not cheap to God, even though it's offered to us freely. We don't pay a dime for it, and yet God paid everything for it. We can't merit it. We can never repay God for it, and yet it comes into our lives with such a powerful force that it actually can create love in our hearts. It can actually create gratitude in our hearts to God and, and completely change our lives from the inside out, so much so that, like Isaiah, we say, Here I am, Lord, do with me as you will. Send me your commandment, God, because now my heart is bound to your heart because of what you did for me through your Son. Are you amazed? Or, you know, do you have some lesions on your spiritual heart and conscience? That keep you from feeling the the amazement that you ought to feel. That you ought to embrace as you look at how God has embraced you. Lastly this morning, when God shows up, he showed Isaiah his commission. And he shows the same thing to us, you know. But he he does it in a kind of a weird way, we have to admit. uh, If you look there at uh, verse 8, Whom shall I sin, God says? And who will go for us? It's just, we just got to stop there and be amazed by that. Uh, this is the king of kings who's, you know, filling the temple. He's shaking the foundations of the temple and of the earth itself. And yet he says, I need somebody to go on an errand for me. That's amazing, isn't it? But that, that's part of the amazing thing about being a Christian is even though God doesn't need us, strictly speaking, to serve him. Yet God chooses to get a lot of his work done through humans, through people like me and you, sinners who've been saved by grace. And so he asks, is there anybody here who's willing? And Isaiah, freshly encouraged by the grace of God, says, send me. And then God gives him what we would think would be a pep talk. Because normally, because normally when you give someone a speech before they go do a hard thing, Your your normal goal is to say, all right, don't worry. It's going to be okay. You're going to do a great job. And it's going to go so well. People are going to love you, Isaiah. Because you are going to give them the best news that's ever been given on earth. You're going to be the man. And yet, what does God say? Go and tell this people. Hear, but don't hear. See, but don't see. Listen to my words so your heart gets harder. And your ears get more dull, and your eyes get more closed, so that you don't see with your eyes, hear with your ears, and understand with your heart, and turn and get healed. What do you think Isaiah is thinking? Well, uh, you don't have to guess. It says what he's thinking, verse eleven. How long, O Lord, must I do this? (laughs) Lord, I mean, okay, great, Lord, thank you for that that commission. I'm going to go out and actually my work is going to seem to make things worse in Israel. That's what God's telling Isaiah. It's going to make it worse for a while. Okay? How long, Lord? And then God gives no less bad news until the cities lie ruined. Until there's no inhabitant in the whole land. Until everybody is exiled and the whole land is utterly forsaken. And yet, he says, at the end of verse 13, Just as when you chop down a terebinth tree or an oak tree, there's still a stump left. At least you've got that. So there is, by your ministry, going to be a holy seed. A holy seed, just a seed that is going to be like a stump left of Israel, from which I'm going to bring new life. Isn't that amazing? I don't know if you've ever cut down a tree in your yard but not removed the stump. And you just kind of left it for a couple years. What do you normally have? Four trees. (laughs) You know, I did that. You know, I had had a a orange tree in my yard that wasn't producing fruit. It was very old. And so I just chopped it down and I ended up having four new orange trees from the same spot. Right. We'll see if they produce fruit or not. (laughs) That's what God is saying. Look, your job, Isaiah, is not going to be a happy job. Because you've just been called to be my messenger during a time of judgment. And that's not going to be fun. You're not going to be loved. You're going to be hated. You're actually going to be martyred. And yet, I'm going to still be at work by my grace to preserve, at the very least, a holy seed, what Isaiah and other places calls a remnant. Just a little piece left over that I'm going to then take and plant in the land and bring about fresh life to my people Israel. In other words, think about this. When God sends us out by his grace to do his work, we have to lay down our pragmatism. Do you understand that? We have to lay down our pragmatism, our desire for just to do things that work the way we think they ought to work. It's an American value, pragmatism, right? We have to lay aside our obsession with success as we normally conceive of it. And we've just got to keep doing what God tells us to do because, number one, God is worthy of us doing it, which Isaiah knew without a shadow of a doubt. And number two, God's grace is absolutely sovereign and will absolutely do good to people through the work he's called us to do. This is so important. Let me just give you, you know, as we kind of land the plane here, let me give you a few areas to think about in your life. Think about at home as a parent. Or as a husband or wife. Is the work God is calling you to do at home always working, quote unquote, the way you think it should work? Does it always go on the timetable which you think it should go on? I mean, unless your family is extraordinarily exceptional, then the answer to both of those things is no. No. The work God has called us to do as parents is often a very thankless work. Um, you know, we suddenly become idiots when the kids become teenagers, right, who, who know nothing. <laughs> and they may not, you know, realize we've reformed ourselves until they're 24 or so. And that, that can be really hard to persevere through. I mean, I understand that. I've got a teenager in the home myself. I understand. I also have a three-year-old. And they're kind of like teenagers, too, in a way. <laughs> It's very tough. It's tough to just show up and say, you know what? I'm going to discipline these children. I'm going to provide for these children. I'm going to teach them. I'm going to bring them alongside of me and help them learn how to grow as a man or as a woman. I'm going to do that even when they don't thank me for it, even when it seems like actually they're going in the opposite direction that I'm telling them to go in. Because I know two things God is worthy of me parenting for his sake, that never changes. And God's grace is sovereign. There are ways he works in my kid's life that I don't even see. And the story is not usually over until God says it is. And So while it may seem dark right now, in my parenting or in my marriage, it doesn't mean it will always be dark. So we have a two-fold source of encouragement on the commission that God sent us on. It's the same thing here at church. It's the same thing at your work. Whatever it is God has called you to do, it will not always work out the way we think it should. That does not mean that we're doing the wrong thing always. Sometimes it does. Because sometimes things don't work because we do it wrong. (laughs) And you should always be willing to examine yourself that way. And I should be willing to examine myself that way. But sometimes we're doing the exact thing God wants us to do, and it still seems futile. Guess what? How long, O Lord? Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep showing up. you got to fight to show up. you got to fight to put one foot in front of the other, doing the thing that God has called you to do, because God is always worthy. He's holy, holy, holy. The plan that he has deserves to be carried out. The word that he's spoken deserves to be heard on earth. The prayers of Christ in heaven deserve to be echoed down here. So we keep praying. We keep showing up. We keep building up courage because God is the one who has commissioned us. I wonder this morning, how are you discouraged? If you're watching in uh, at home, how, how are you discouraged? I'm sure for each one of us, there's a different reason or two why discouragement is there. Can you take fresh courage in the worthiness of God and in the sovereign grace that will never fail to have at least, at the very least, the holy seed from which might spring a whole world of life.